0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am Joe List. This is my first and hopefully only attempt at this introduction of this episode of this podcast. I hope that you're doing well. I appreciate you tuning in and listening. I hope you're subscribed. Uh, If you're listening, please uh, take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. And uh, perhaps you're listening on YouTube. I'm realizing now in this moment, I meant to shoot a video of myself doing the intro but I have uh, forgotten so anyways you might be enjoying this on YouTube if you're not uh, you can but you're already enjoying it as a podcast so enjoy it however way you wish to but if you are watching on YouTube please click su- subscribe that's a tough word to say subscribe there or if you're listening as a podcast go to my YouTube subscribe whatever you want to do just subscribe to all the stuff I hate uh, doing this kind of promotion-y type thing, but it's important, they tell me, and uh, I don't know. So do it, and uh, you know, leave a nice comment or a nice review on the podcast area if you'd like to. I hope you're doing well. There seems to be uh, good news with COVID. I don't know. I'm looking at it as positive. I think they're vaccinating 1.7 million people each day, and that's supposed to go up, and uh, there was some article prediction that, Around July would be around herd immunity. So uh, that's exciting. If you're in Texas, I hope you're doing well. I know your pipes froze or something. I was uh, in Ecuador. I wasn't getting too much news, which was an uh, exciting and exhilarating trip that I talk about a little bit in the episode. And um, I talk about it a bunch on Tuesdays with Stories. I hope you're a fan of that show. Maybe you're not. I don't know. I like it. Um... Anyways, also check out my, my new movie podcast with my friend Ronan Hirschberg, who was the first guest ever on Mindful Mental Jacket. Um, that's on my YouTube and, and soon to be a, a real-life uh, podcast, I believe. We'll see what happens there, but um, check that out. And um, Anyway, so I hope you're doing well. As, if you're in Texas is what I started saying. My wife's family is down there, and my wife's family is my family, so they seem to be doing okay, but I know it got pretty rough down there. I uh, hope you're doing all right. I hope you're doing well wherever you are, around the country, around the world, and I hope you're um, helping somebody else out and we're taking care of each other. It's very important. Anyways, I am babbling around, babbling along, babbling, brook. I don't know what I'm talking about. Hey, if you like uh, seeing me do stand-up comedy, March uh, 18, 19, 20, I'll be at Side Splitters in Tampa. And um, that's going to be a fun one. Sarah's coming with me. might be another friend of mine coming along. So get your tickets to that. And um, also I'm back in Royersford, March 24th, which I'm excited about. Soul Joel's, one of my favorite gigs. And I know a lot of you have come to that. So please check that out. And Kansas City, New new Club Helium in um, Kansas City, April 8th. 9th, and tenth Omaha funny bone, April twenty third and twenty fourth. Let me get to today's business. I got a special guest on the podcast, Bridget Fetessy. You know her? I hope you do. I hope you love her. If you know her, I know her and love her. Um it's funny I mentioned this in the podcast. We've never actually met in person. We met during um uh, pandemic through some mutual friends, our our roads. Um Two uh, sobriety paths have crossed. she's a sober person I'm a sober person. We've gotten to know each other in that world. and um, she's a wonderful comedian person, podcaster um, out on the West Coast. You can check out her um, show on YouTube, Dumpster Fire, and um, check out her podcast, which we uh, talk a little bit about. She's um, a fellow. Um, admirer of uh, Sam Harris's work, which we talk about for a while. Um, she, uh, I got to interview him, and uh, we've kind of bonded over our, our love for the Waking Up app, which I mention every week. And um, importantly, in this episode, she's a fellow. Reco- well, she's a recovering hypochondriac, uh, which we talk. The second half of the show is is very much about hypochondria. And um, she's somebody that's really helped me in that department. And so we talk a lot about that. So if you happen to be a hypochondriac, this is a great episode for you. And I think you'll get a lot out of it, even if you aren't. Um, But we talk about uh, quite a few things. We talk about social media and um, hypochondria and Sam Harris and dealing with um, being public figures, I suppose and um a lot of other good stuff we just both got back from international travel she was in south africa and i was in ecuador and um we both were kind of traveling home at the same time so we touched on that and uh, bridget is just a hilarious person as you'll hear she's got some great stories and it's really a fun funny episode with a lot of um i think good uh wisdom in it and i got a lot out of it certainly and um we talked for uh, over an hour and then uh, when we stopped recording we talked for another almost an hour so it was really great it was a a, a great conversation and it was it was also nice because she just happened to have gotten home and uh, i had gotten home and wasn't sure what i was going to do for an episode this week and cuz i was kind of in travel mode and so it was uh kismet so um yeah i'm 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 talking too much but uh i'm still uh, buzzing from such a, a wonderful conversation that I, I certainly got a lot out of, as you'll as you'll hear. And um, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And um, in the spirit of talking about hypochondria, one of my favorite quotes that I'll give you today is from the wonderful Mark Twain. And uh, maybe I've used this quote before, and uh, I might get it wrong. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but Mark Twain said something along the lines of, I'm now an old man, and I've known a great many troubles. Most of them never happened. And um, I think about that quote all the time. Um, So he's really smart and funny, and uh, that kind of addresses um, hypochondria and anxiety to some degree. And uh, that's what we talk about quite a bit in this episode. So without further delay, please enjoy this conversation With my dear friend, Bridget Fettesy. All right, we're live. This is it. We're recording. I always get, as soon as I click record, (laughs) I always just come apart. Do you I get, get nervous. Yeah, do you? Do you get nervous? I get more nervous as hosting a podcast than as a guest, particularly when the guest has their own podcast.
1: I start freaking out um, pretty early on, and particularly about maybe messing something up and not recording, or you know, not having the sound right. I worry about the technical stuff because I'm so bad at that, and then. I also just start, I get stage fright. I mean, I, I get stage fright when I actually go on stage, but I get stage fright even when I do podcasts.
0: <laughs> yeah, for, for me, it's podcast. Like stage live stand-up, I rarely get nervous or anxious. It's like an area that I feel so pretty jealous. comfortable. But podcasts, it's hard because... A, it's one on one, which is always uh, tricky. particular It's worse for me when it's someone I don't know and they're like an expert in yeah. something. Like I've I've interviewed a few like like an author and a few Buddhists that I'm like I'm just gonna sound like a fucking idiot. Yeah, and they're gonna hate me and I- I'm just gonna come off as an asshole. And I just picture the guest being like, I cannot believe I'm doing this.
1: <laughs> I have a podcast coming up like that where I feel. Almost starstruck by her. She's just so amazing. It's Ayan Hershiali, who many people have issues with, but I find her just so impressive. And you know, she speaks multiple languages. She's was in the Dutch parliament. She worked as a translator in refugee centers. And wow. I'm like, hello. <laughs> Why are you talking to me?
0: Yeah, it's hard. I felt <laughs> that way. I interviewed Sharon Salzberg, who's like a big Buddhist and one of like the main people that brought Buddhism to the West. And I just felt like an idiot because yeah. it's also like... It's hard for me to be, I feel like Chris Farley, the Chris Farley show where I'm like, remember you did that thing? And they're like, yeah, it was crazy. (laughs) So anyway, so I always get anxious and I just feel like I'm a fucking idiot. I'm not a podcaster who cares what I have to say and uh, all that good stuff.
1: I get it. We have have the same thing, that same imposter syndrome. I think that Although I hear from so many people how much they love your podcast and get so much out of it, particularly because it centers around mental health. And I think that it you probably underestimate how important the conversations you're having are.
0: Oh, thank you. well, yeah. No, it it's been like I hate to use like cliche terms of like it's been so rewarding, but it does feel like the like the nicest things I've anyone's ever written to me or said to me as far as my work, uh, which I feel pretentious saying is from this <laughs> podcast, like the reviews and the emails are like so overly touching and um, but it is the most stressful and anxiety-inducing thing that I've ever done in my career. So I have to look at it as like, well, I'm doing a service for other people, but it makes me miserable a lot of the times because I'm like, I, I sometimes I'm like, I can't fill an hour. I don't know what I'm going to ask. And then I don't know if you have this with your part when you're talking to people. My brain is like operating quickly. So someone will talk and I'm like, all right, I got to respond with this. And then they'll say another thing. And I'm like, I got to remember this question. And I have so many things going that I just forget all of them. Mm-hmm. And then I just feel like I'm completely lost. And I also feel like any moment where I'm like, um, who, what, you know, you know like your, any <laughs> thoughtful pause feels just like, oh, I suck. And everyone hates me.
1: I feel that anxiety of I'm getting better about writing my questions down because I have the worst habit, which is interrupting. And I really, try not to interrupt people but i get very over excited when i'm jiving with someone or whatever the, i don't know if jiving is a word we use anymore sure but no i like it i'm bringing it back and so if somebody if i'm getting creatively stimulated or excited or i feel like i can really relate to somebody i will i have the horrible habit of interrupting and it's so embarrassing to even hear or I generally read my interviews that I do because I jo- I can't stand listening to myself. So I'll at least try and read the transcriptions and even seeing it there where I'm cutting people off is just mortifying. They're finishing some brilliant thought and I'm jumping in with my stupid question or thought or or just like, yeah, I feel that too. It just, it's, it's embarrassing.
0: Yeah, I have... Had that also, where I just spring up and I'm like, I think that person never finished that thought. <laughs> um, but I have um, an example. Though the I I always take solace, in, and I'm going to really name drop here. But um, and speaking of people that are controversial, I'm friends with Louis C.K. and one time we went to see um, Paul McCartney and we talked to him afterwards, and Paul McCartney was in the middle of a story, and Louis interrupted him and. I think he thought he was done. He started talking about something. And then when Louis finished, Paul McCartney went, okay, but anyway, and then he continued his story. And I witnessed this like firsthand. And I was like, that was the worst interruption of all time. Like, I would, I would literally kill myself I would take my own life if I started talking. And then Paul McCartney was like, anyways, like I was saying, and um, afterwards we, we left and we were like on top of the world cause we were talking to Paul McCartney, but he was like, I cannot believe I interrupted Paul McCartney. So I guess I tell this story not just to uh, name drop these gigantic celebrities that I spend a lot of time with. Um, That's a joke. I don't hang out with Paul McCartney. But my point is, whatever, anytime you've ever interrupted anybody, it was not as extreme as interrupting a Beatle telling a story after his own concert.
1: Okay, that does make me feel better.
0: (laughs) I hope that was a yeah, that was a roundabout way to try to make everybody feel better. Who's ever interrupted anybody?
1: What's even worse is that I do it more often to women. And so that makes me feel doubly horrible.
0: Well, you're an enemy of the state, then. I mean,
1: I'm 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 the patriarchy.
0: Yeah, you're a problem. Clearly, <laughs> um, but so you all right? So you inter- we're both Sam Harris people. I talk about Sam Harris every single podcast here, and mm-hmm. uh, to the point where it's uncomfortable, I guess.
1: Um, <laughs> have you had him on your podcast?
0: No, I have messaged him like on Twitter So he followed me. I just saw that he followed me on Twitter somehow, and um, I just messaged to be like, "Man, you're uh, every every once in a while, I'll just send like a one sentence message to him to be like." Your, fuck, your apps changed my life. Thank you. And he you know, just uh, gives like a thumbs up or something. Um, but I, maybe sh- I should
1: put you guys in touch.
0: Um, that would be great. I mean, I'm getting just nervous thinking about it. I just love this guy. <laughs> I a, was
1: really nervous to interview Sam. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. It was terrifying. <laughs>
0: that's what <laughs> I was going to ask. Because first of all, like, and he's another guy that's very controversial, I guess, uh, which is interesting because I learned of Sam Harris through, um the meditation like he was on tim oh, okay. so like to me he's like this buddhist um you know uh meditation guy
1: you didn't see the fight with ben affleck on mar
0: i did see that but i didn't put together that was Sam. i watch real time uh, religiously i i love a lot of people that it, most people hate it feels like um but bill Mars another guy i just think is <laughs> great. everything he says i love but um I I watched the episode I I just never put it together that the guy I was meditating with was the same guy that, you know, got in a fight with Ben Affleck. Um, So anyway, I've I've told people like Sam Harris changed my life and like that piece of shit
1: Um, (laughs) and I'm like, oh, Jesus, sorry. (laughs) That's sad that people would be turned off by his app just because I don't know. I think it's important to be able to separate the message from the messenger more than ever before.
0: I agree. Um, but
1: yeah, I think that Sam, it was nerve wracking until I, my first question was, uh, I told him generally, if I'm nervous to interview somebody, I'll just straight up tell them because it takes my nerves away. But and then I asked him what his morning routine was. And he said something brilliant along the, and just also along the lines of, and this is where I, I will be, you know, my feet will be planted firmly in the mud or something. And basically said he had no morning routine and he wakes up super late. <laughs> and he, and he, I, uh, it made me feel much better after that.
0: Um, it's funny you said, because I think I remember you telling me that and I thought that was interesting, but it's funny you say that because I do his meditation every day every morning from the waking up app, which I recommend to everybody. And this morning's meditation was the fourth installment of the meta loving kindness meditation, which is on the app, which I've listened to a bunch. And there was a moment where I was like, Hey, wait a minute. This is fucking recycled. I've heard this one before. (laughs) And I thought about you telling me that I'm like, I bet he slept in, didn't record. And he just (laughs) threw something up there. This, this son of a bitch. And that was happening during my loving kindness (laughs) meditation. Um, but I'm how did sure
1: they're all preloaded long before?
0: I know in my mind at like eleven fifty nine, he's like recording it and thinking about me because that's how my <laughs> ego works. Um, But so the end, I I should have listened to the interview, I guess, before uh, interviewing you. But it went well. You were happy with it?
1: Yeah, it went great. I it's it's um I felt like sometimes it's hard to have a, a conversation with people who are so proficient at talking yes. and who have done so many you know, TED Talks and they have their kind of canned responses a lot of times or they're they They've memorized their TED Talks. And I've interviewed people where I've watched their TED Talk and then asked them questions and they've just repeated the TED Talk almost verbatim. And that is um, understandable. You know, it's like stand up comedy. It's just kind of their their pitch. But with Sam, it was very much in the moment and a conversation. And I actually went prepared with quite a few questions. I, I generally won't let myself be, with, with certain guests like Sam, there are certain things I wanted to make sure that I asked him just so that I wasn't waking up later in the night. And I'm like, damn it, why didn't I ask? I had this opportunity to ask him this one question and I didn't.
0: Right, waking up later
1: waking uh, up
0: there it yeah. is. now when you talked to him was it more about now I'm just like fanboying about Sam Harris but was it more, what did you talk about meditation and, and that mental stuff or were you talking about world affairs and stuff?
1: we talked about meditation but really like my podcast always revolves around the person's story so I really wanted to hear how he got into meditation. What was his experience with it? How he found he ended up on that path. How you know he and he was kind of a, a I mean late bloomer for as he he says himself, and that he went on this kind of existential journey and went traveling around and was practicing meditation. And then he came back and got all of his degrees. I didn't realize that. I thought that he went and got his degrees and then went. And um, became, got into meditation after he, be, you know, was into like neuroscience and all that. But it was actually the other way around. So that was interesting for me to learn about him. Wow. And just to his experience with different meditations. I've been to India and I've been to ashrams in New Zealand and Australia. And we talked a lot about just the weird guru aspect of those places and the different brands i guess for lack of any kind of word the the lineage and um his different practices but it was yeah it was a good and then just got into more heady kind of sam harris stuff that you can really only talk to sam about you know (laughs) right um so it, it went well it was I really like Sam a lot and respect him. I think he gets demonized unfairly for being a pretty reasonable person and um, almost religiously, (laughs) for lack of a better word, devoted to fact and trying to come from a place of fact and reason. And, you know, he's human and has his his um, emotions. He was definitely emotional around. Trump in certain areas. But when it when it comes to really just evaluating different situations, he did a podcast right after all of the riots and all the stuff that over the summer that I really feel like everyone in America should listen to just because it's so it comes from such a rational but also compassionate place. I think he does a good job of that.
0: Yeah, no, it's I, I agree, and uh, I listen to both waking up and making sense now pretty uh, religiously for lack of also. Yeah, it's always funny. Used <laughs> um,
1: with an atheist.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So okay, so that that puts me like I talked about earlier, like in a fork in the road interview-wise, because I want to know. I'm interested in a you. You're a public figure that has some you're not afraid to uh, mix it up. It seems like on on Twitter and and take some controversial stances, which I'm fascinated by um, dealing with that because I, I have this thing where anytime anyone's upset with me, I'm just I want to kill myself. Um, so I'm interested in that. But I'm also interested in um, all of these, uh, the med- your meditation um, journey. So I guess that that i'm i guess more interested in so i guess i'll just stop off in the area of how do you deal with i assume what i assume is a lot of negative feedback all a lot of your tweets have 350 responses are you reading them are you paying much attention to you does it get to you or and and how long did it come take you to get to that place if you're not spending time thinking about it
1: i have uh weird love hate relationship with Twitter and that it's given me so much. And I really, I loved it when, when I really got into it in 2013 and finally kind of got it um, and found all the comedians and the writers who were the family guy writers and the way that I felt it was, I found my tribe in a way of just people who are using it to hone their craft of being succinct, making jokes and also being self-deprecating of all the social media platforms, I felt like I could relate to Twitter the most. And it's really evolved for the worse over the past (laughs) years. (laughs) (laughs) And even last night, I was just feeling sad because I feel like the tendency to see the worst in everybody and just assume the worst intentions of everybody's statements or throw, you can't make a throwaway comment. You know, you, I said something, here's a good example. I said something because I was just in South Africa and somebody was saying, We just, you know, the California needs to open and Gavin Newsom is in this bind because the unions are telling him to close, but he's also being Gavin Newsom, our governor in California for anyone who doesn't know. And then there's a recall effort uh, that's coming from the right because he's destroyed small businesses and all of our shops are boarded up and industry is shutting down, unemployment's out of control and the schools still aren't open and there's no real science to really kind of back this up so he there was this tweet with an article in politico and i said you know even south africa's oh even south africa's open and i knew right after i hit send i was like oh that's gonna be misinterpreted you know some i meant like we were in similar boats in terms of our numbers in terms of we had we had lockdowns again around the same time it's different situations entirely. Obviously there's 60 million people in South Africa. There are 40 million people in California. Obviously there are different demographics, numbers, geographics, all kinds of things going on. But it was you, if you look at all of this, basically everyone kind of follows a similar trajectory, even if they try and avoid it, eventually they have to face this reckoning. And, um, we both had our hospitals kind of overflowing and and then they were they were grappling with this new variant that came out of South Africa, which, by the way, I think it's funny that we can't call it the Chinese virus, but we can call it the South African variant. But that's a weird tangent. I'll go on in another day. And so I knew that this was. Something that somebody was going to be like, what do you mean by even? <laughs> and sure enough,
0: right. almost
1: instantly, someone's like, I don't really know what you mean by even South Africa. And I was like, Ah, shit! And I ended up getting into a discussion with them, but then I regretted that, and then I was, I just deleted it all. I was like, I, don't, I don't even want to deal with this. I don't, I don't, I can't. I don't even know. Why I responded, and then he, the person and I ended up having a discussion in the DMs in direct messages because he ended up or they I don't know if it's he or she, but it seemed like a he he ended up um, kind of apologizing and being like, I did take th- read that in the worst possible light. And he's like, and I know you and follow you and know that you wouldn't be disparaging all of South Africa like it's some shithole country. I actually was like, hey, they figured this out. Why can't we? Right. Like, it seems like we were in comparable situations. So they just opened their schools last week. And it seems like, why can't we, um, not because I would expect less of them just because we were in similar boats at the same time, but it's too, it's like, I can't get that all across and and, in, in a tweet. And then you end up, and so it actually ended up being productive, but, um, that is the kind of thing that drives me insane about the site now is that everybody just assumes the worst of your words.
0: Yeah, it definitely feels like the, that's why I love Instagram, which I'm sure will devolve at some point, but Instagram feels like the least amount of insanity and negativity. Not that there's not that there also, but Twitter really does feel like a complete fucking cesspool. It's like, it's like triggering to me i deleted the app i still use it on like uh i'll pull it up on whatever it is the the fucking internet or whatever on my phone and and i'll throw something out there every once in a while and i try not to look at it but there's always and some are just trolls which doesn't bother me because i'm like oh you're doing that thing okay great but like sometimes there's people that misinterpret your things or want to get into it with you and you're just like You're I hate you. And it just it does make me want to just delete (laughs) it. Like that's what's hard is you know, we're we're comedians, and even before I was a comedian just growing up in New England, like I always just hung with like really ball busty, irreverent friends who would to me comedy since I was a kid, like nine was like saying the most possible inappropriate thing was part of comedy. And what's difficult now is you try to take that into the public forum, you just have that and It doesn't go for everybody. And with Twitter, it gets shot out to like everybody that doesn't have that sense of humor. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm I'm not a guy who has that thing of like, ah, fuck them. Fuck your feelings. I don't I don't I'm like concerned with people's feelings. I'm like, shit, I didn't mean to upset you. I'm sorry, I'll delete it. (laughs) And then people are like, fuck you for deleting it, you pussy. And you're like, ah, geez. And so sometimes I'm like, I got to just keep my sense of humor to like my friends and just text it instead of tweeting it, I guess.
1: Well, it's interesting just, I think Rogan is the one who always says Twitter is like mental patients throwing shit at each other. (laughs) And there is to answer your question. I, I definitely, um, I guess I didn't, I don't look at 90% of what's said to me. And sometimes I'll just go hard on a topic because I'm bored, like boredom plus, me and Twitter is bad because then I just find a button and I want to keep pushing it because I like being annoying, which is a horrible defect of character, but something that is like in my entire family somehow. Right. Um, my sister was like, is being annoying genetic because my kids really (laughs) thrive at it too. (laughs) And, and we just love being annoying. It's just I find it amusing. And I definitely know if I'm pushing buttons, the world's going to push back. I, I don't feel like some kind of victim or anything like that. And I think that helps with dealing with all the blowback. Also, knowing that I can just log out. I've had some scarier pylons with different factions um, that are actually terrifying. And, and you're like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have kicked that hornet's nest because now I need to go let the local police know that I'm in danger of being swatted. That that's more extreme people, you know, the the pylons can get bad, but I find that you really, they, they get oxygen from paying attention to them. Right. So just log out or ignore it. It's, it's in some respects it is real. And in other respects, it's not real at all. And it's, if it's, generally my rules, if my blood is boiling or I'm feeling anxious or I have PMS and I'm hypersensitive, I know just to log out, you know, it's, that's a sign to me. Like, it's almost like when I first got sober, pause when agitated or doubtful is very hard for me. I had to really consciously think about this all the time. And, and then suddenly it, kind of reversed on itself and it was like oh I'm agitated that means I pause so the same thing has happened with Twitter where it's like oh I want to I want to kill somebody and or I feel like I hate all of humanity that means it's time for me to log out and go for a walk so it's it's like not taking responsibility for my own state of being that I'm creating, by the way. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. No, it, it feels like a magic trick sometimes when you're like and not just with people tweeting at you, but just news stories or a constant negativity coming from or or other people. For me, I get like anxiety from looking at other people because I kind of stay out of it on, on Twitter for the most part. But seeing other people debate, I'll, I'll start reading their debates and I'm like, oh, my God, we're fucked as a society. But it's like this weird magic trick where you can just kind of close your computer and it box. just disappears. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go for a walk and people are just smiling and the birds are singing or whatever bullshit. Um,
1: That's not really true in L.A. anymore, although I just went for a drive and I was like, holy shit. It's like a pre apocalyptic in this town. It's like there was like a lady sitting on the sidewalk and there was she had just clearly had some fight with a pillow and there was like a destroyed pillow in the middle of the road and she was half naked and then there was a whole tent town and nobody else is around because everybody's still kind of locked down. And L.A. is really—I don't know what New York is like, but LA's not. L.A. is looking pretty rough right now.
0: Yeah, I keep hearing about that. It's weird. I'm in Queens, New York, and it's pretty much fine here. I mean, like Midtown Manhattan—I've been in once, and it's it's quiet because everything's closed. So there's more kind of homeless people and beggars or whatever, uh, and it feels a little seedier for sure. But in my neighborhood, it's pretty normal and seems to be getting better. I heard LA is starting to get a little better. So I have some hope that things will get better, but yeah, it sounds like LA and California, again, going back to Sam Harris, just keeps talking about how California is coming apart.
1: Yeah. It's um, really unsettling and depressing. I was just in downtown Santa Monica, which used to be a thriving business area and people, buskers would be down there and people would be wandering around and shopping and it would be, And yes, we are in a pandemic, but but in the absence of all of that is left with stores that are still boarded up from the riots and stores that have been completely shuttered, which we really won't know the toll of that until we actually open back up and then just homeless people. It's 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 weird. It's a weird it's a very strange. I've been just kind of in my own bubble. So when I leave, I'm like, whoa.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's well, so that's like a good um, transition into some of the stuff I wanted to talk about because I'm coming up. We're both coming off trips. It's funny. I texted you. Um, on, I was on my flight home from Ecuador and then you were traveling home from South Africa, which is yeah.
1: um, a long haul. Holy crap.
0: Yeah. So I assume you have to lay over in Atlanta, France. New York. Oh, France. Well, was way off. On the,
1: <laughs> no, no, no. You were right. On the way there, it was on the way there it was LA to Atlanta, Atlanta to Charles de Gaulle and then Charles de Gaulle to Johannesburg. Jesus. Um, it was a lot. It took me, and then we had to take another flight to Port Elizabeth, which is another part of South Africa. So it was four flights and 48 full hours door to door just to get there. And we had a 10 hour layover in Paris. And it was that's, I've done a lot of world traveling and I'm pretty sure that's the longest it's taken me to get anywhere.
0: That's it. Have you heard of Hawaii? It's pretty close.
1: I know it's <laughs> it's very close. It's um, but it was worth it. It was worth the effort, definitely. And it, you know, the hardest part about it, I think, was that by the end, I was like, "Get me out of this fucking mask!" Like the the mask yeah. is just crazy on the long hauls, and and in some ways, it's weird. And I haven't even talked to anybody about this. And I'm sure you experienced a little bit of this too. In some ways it's the most irritating tra- traveling's irritating anyway. And this is even more irritating because especially if you're going forward in time or backward in time with the COVID tests, you have to get, uh, depending on where you're going in this instance, in South Africa, you need a negative COVID test 72 hours before your departure. Right. But sometimes when you land, they're just doing the math from, when you got the COVID test, is it 72 hours? They're not saying is the 72 hours from your departure. They're just looking at the day you got there and the day that your test says. So they kind of gave us crap because we got our, even though it was 72 hours before departure, by the time we got there, it was almost, you know, four days later. And so that can be tricky, just trying to work out all the math of getting the COVID test so that it's timed right. Um, what did you have to do for Ecuador?
0: So Ecuador is the same thing we had to get. It's weird. It was more lenient coming back. So we had to get it within 72 hours. So I went to the place in Queens and it cost $200 each. It was Sarah and I to get a test that came back like 22 hours later. And it was like the jam up the nose, both sides. Yeah, and I'm yeah, a big, I had
1: like four of those.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm like, I'm just filled with phobia and anxiety. I, anything medical dental, I don't want to do. I absolutely hate it. I went, like 10 months without getting tested until I did a show at the village underground. Cause I was like, I just, I can't, I, I can't stand it. And now that I've like everything in my life, once you have it, you're like, ah, that wasn't so bad. Um, but so we did that. And then to get back, we had to get one. I think it was within like 10 days and we got it in Ecuador. And luckily, uh, my friend speaks fluent Spanish, which really helped because I was so again, anxious in, in getting it and they don't speak the language and you had to, get it and get the results. And then that's in Spanish. And so I was really anxious that it wasn't going to work out, but it did as it always does. But so I was coming back and I've felt like this incredible piece during the last year. I, like I'm like many people, I'm fortunate and I make money off my podcast. And so I've been like, this has been like the best year of my life. I haven't had to fly and do, you know, meet and greets and write material. I've just kind of been hanging out and doing a ton of, <laughs> uh meditation and um all that kind of stuff recovery stuff and really exercising and and laying low and enjoying because i've been on the road for 16 years like 40 plus weeks a year so this was like exciting to not have to come up with material and all this stuff so but i was feeling i'm like because of meditation and all this work i'm doing i'm like cured i'm like zen man i feel like i'm I'm fucking I'm better than Sam Harris. Fuck that guy. (laughs) And then I traveled to Ecuador and, you know, it's 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 South America during covid. And um, I had to ride this. I rode this uh, cable car that was like 550 feet in the air across two valleys and there was no bottom. And I'm I'm terrified of not heights, but like ledges like I'm not flying does not do anything to me. Being in a skyscraper doesn't scare me. But being on like a. Un, you know, like uh, Ecuador, no, no uh, safety, regulation, no regulations. Yeah. We didn't sign anything. Nobody said shit, and like you could see straight down, and that was terrifying. And then there's there's fucking feral dogs everywhere, which I'm afraid of dogs. And um, we went like tubing, and there was no regulations there either, like down a white rapid river, and and so like it did like damage to my central nervous system, and I was feeling pins and needles in my face and hands. And I kind of relapsed in my hypochondria and started Googling, like, mm. am I having Bell's palsy or cerebral palsy? And I haven't done that in like a couple of years. And so it felt like this weird anxiety hypochondria relapse. And I was, then, I'm, then I start coming apart of the seams where I'm like, oh, I'm not Zen. I've just been home not facing anything or dealing with anything. And so that's where I kind of felt by the end of my trip.
1: And I well, know you're with hypochondria. <laughs> yeah, yeah i I have, and I had a I had similar not experiences. It was, um, but same thing. Cable cars, and we the first night we were in one of the parks. We were with a lot of the locals and the people who worked in the park. So we were doing things. Like they make such a big deal. Like, don't get out of your car. Do not get out of your car. Whatever you do, don't get out of your car because there's lions and leopards and all this shit. And the like, it's a fucking it's everything's trying to kill you. Right. First night there, we're like having a braai, which is their word for a barbecue, basically. In the middle of the park with the people who live because in, you can't come and go out of the park if you work there. So there are people who, which was Crazy and news to me. Who have been born kind of into these parks, or they live in the park in this village, and they're the workers in the park. And because oh. you can't like drive in and out every night, because you can't leave at night, because you can't, you're not supposed to be driving around at night. So we're in the middle of this park and they're like, we're going to go down by the riverbed. And there's a very low chance of crocodiles because of the fact that these are dr- normally dry beds and it's been flooding. And so they're not going to risk going up there because they'd get stranded when, and we had to, the first night it's like, all right, hitch up your pants. And like and we're just standing in the middle of this, in the middle of the park, you know, cooking meats of all things. Jesus. And that's just their Tuesday. You know, I'm like, this right. is like my I'm I'm and I had that moment. It took me a minute to I had to breathe into it. You know, I, I definitely yeah. felt like that. Not anxiety, but I was I know when I'm disconnected from present reality because I'll get in my head and start feeling like um, my breath gets short and I can't. And I was kind of not able to like have a conversation it's almost like the same thing that happens to me before I go on stage because of my stage fright I just can't function I can't like carry on a conversation with anyone because right. my nerves are getting to me and I just had to breathe into it and then after five minutes I was like everything's fine you're with people you know there were many situations that I was in in South Africa. I, whether it was with animals or in with people or like you said, in countries where things are less regu- regulated, we live in like a plastic fucking bubble in America. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's in some ways, it's great. In other ways, it's over regulation and ridiculous. And um, we we ended up um, it was great. And then we left and our friends had driven us because we didn't have four wheel drive. So they left us at this riverbed, right where as far as the car that we had could go, and then my friend who was driving, we get dropped off. They go ahead. Thank God they waited. My friend pulls into the freaking riverbed and gets stuck instantly. So oh now his God. wheels are spinning in the sand, and it's dark in the middle of the park. And I'm like, oh my, the like this. It feels like. Like I was going to say, any minute things could go terribly wrong. You know, it's like this is probably going to be fine, but this could all go terribly wrong like at any minute now. And we're standing outside of the car in the dark while they come back up and pull. Thank God these trucks are amazing Fords. And they pull them out of the of us out of the riverbed. And we drive ten mile, like ten minutes down the road, the same dirt road we came into. And then there's a freaking leopard just cruising down the road and it walks right up to our car and by our car. By the way, oh they can God. smash your windows. It's not like they can't break your windows. And I was like, this freaking leopard was walking down the road. We were all standing outside of the car on like 10 minutes ago.
0: That's horrifying to <laughs> it's me. crazy. Like, yeah, even the story <laughs> terrifying to me and that's hard because i do you have this because like i was with ari shafir who you know and and sometimes you're with these people that are just fearless and feels like nothing's ever happened to them and they don't even care and they're just like like these zach Morrises of the world that just (laughs) seem to have like nothing you know they're like he's just like ah whatever i'll eat that and this guy in the amazon gave this to me and i drink it every morning and i'm like what's the due date on the milk you know yeah and i i feel like i'm like this is insane. We're gonna get killed. Like we're we're up in the sky. At one point, there was a we had to deal with a horse that was chasing, r- charging at me, and it was it was just horrifying. <laughs> but um, and, and sometimes you're just like, this is actual dangerous. Like you just missed a leopard by a few minutes, and you, these yeah. people that are like, ah, don't worry about it. I feel like they're gonna kill people like us. But maybe it's, no. it's good. I don't know.
1: We're I'm weirdly adventurous. I've learned this about myself. I'm I was the first one in the river. I'm definitely I will. I know that the feelings you and I are describing are just being outside of our comfort zone. So right. you aren't it's not that you were healed. It's just that you were in a comfort zone and you push yourself outside of your comfort zone and then you have to expand you know, what is it? I love though. Somebody today was talking about limitless expansion and I love that. It's, it gives, I love the thing I love about in particular, this is where sobriety has been so good for me because before I would do that, but I would be drunk or wasted or high. And I would, not really be aware. I wouldn't feel those feelings of anxiety and fear and have to breathe through them and expand, consciously expand. I would just be like wasted. And it's a miracle that I'm alive. When I think about some of the insane stuff that I did traveling alone as a woman back when I was drinking and traveling around the world. And now I get to be in these situations where, I mean, I'm with people who I have to trust know the environment better than me. Can anything go terribly wrong at any minute anywhere you are? Yes. Like an engine started on fire and it felt debris fell out of the sky. And that could happen to me right now sitting here. Right. And I that was a big part of how I kind of cured my own hypochondria. Weirdly, I started like counting the many ways that I could die in any moment, which seems counterintuitive. But it was like the illusion of control um, kind of has to be shattered for, for me to be able to really be present and, and, and to diminish some of that anxiety because it really is just me wanting to control everything, everything about my body, my health, my experience. And to, my hypochondria acts up in instances when it, I noticed, I started noticing when it would appear and it was always in like the same moments or situations that then i went to my therapist and i was like let's deal with some of these one was shame around sexuality i would get hypochondria around that um was one area another area was when i was doing something really exciting And I felt like I didn't deserve it or I was going to die. Like right before I went to Australia, (laughs) I was like I I had the most debilitating hypochondria. And it was because I felt like and I don't know if this is being raised Catholic and like Catholic guilt or what got squirted into my brain that made me feel like I'm fundamentally worthless and I don't deserve good things. And I will die before I get good things or be punished for it. But that was something that I just couldn't hold joy. You know, it was like I would feel joy and then be like, oh, but you don't deserve this, you're gonna die, obviously. And it was robbing me of the ability to feel joy. That's what I fucking hate about hypochondria, is that it's it it is an addiction to worry. Fundamentally, that's really for me what it manifests as. And it feels like once you're in that loop, it's so hard to get out of it. And then I hate myself because it's so self-obsessive and it, it ultimately is robbing me of whatever joy there is to be had in that present moment. You know, there, the brain doesn't know the difference between fear and unless it's like fight or flight fear. And this is how I have really helped myself with stage fright it, it doesn't know the difference between, um, being excited and being like stage fright nerves or being nervous in a situation that might be new. And so I just have to tell myself, okay, yeah, there's a rational fear that I'll get mauled by a leopard. (laughs) That is true, but more likely than not, these guys know what they're doing. And I'm also just excited because this is new and crazy and outside of the box. And then we did this other thing where they dropped us off on top of a freaking they call it a A, but it's a big rock. This helicopter and left us there for an hour and like 40 minutes <laughs> in the middle of like, it was again, after all of this stuff, you hear, like, don't get out of your car. Right. We're like, we'll just fly around and make sure there are no lions or leopards. And then they just dropped us off on this rock. They're like, we'll be back in an hour and an hour hits. And I'm like, they're not coming back.
0: God, <laughs> this, uh, it sounds horrifying, but what, what you're saying about hypochondria, I'm like, you just nailed it. Exactly. For me, I've always had the same thing. It's always come up when I do the tonight show or I'm getting mm. married or whatever it is. It was always something that would accompany something great or going to Paris or going on a world tour. And it's the same thing. It's that like, I'm going to die before I can get this. And I've come so far because I can now realize like, Oh, there's my anxiety. That's just my anxiety. And it's a combination of therapy of recognizing that there's my anxiety. It's doing that thing. And also the meditation of like, yeah. this is just an appearance in consciousness totally. and it's, it's just passing. It's just thoughts. My thoughts are not reality. And fear is just fear. So that, has really minimized it. Um, like when I did deal with it in Ecuador, there was a moment where I'm, I'm sitting at the table and everyone's having laughs and I'm like Googling Bell's palsy. And <laughs> it's like, it was just like five yeah. minutes. And I was like, this is out of control, obviously. And then I use this website, anxietycenter.com, which is a great website because it lists like every ever recorded symptom of. Anxiety and like tingling in the face and hands is like one of the number one things Mm. things I've dealt with before. But as you know, with hypochondria there or an anxiety, there is that thing of like, most likely this is anxiety. My nervous system has been put to the test by riding a half hour long 600 feet cable car in Ecuador. And <laughs> but also I'm like, but it, it it's tingling. I mean, this could be my it, it could be some kind of neurological thing with my head. But it, it was short lived. It turns the volume down and shortens it through all the work I've done. But it it does make me able to be like, oh, this probably has a lot to do with the fact there was a horse running at me the other day. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? So it, it was quicker. But like you mentioned I start having that self-loathing of like, I'm still doing it. I'm on this amazing trip with great friends and I'm Googling fucking cerebral palsy, which I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and because I'm a piece of shit and I'll never be able to get over this because of these these fears. And and it does go quickly into self-loathing because I've dealt with that my whole life as I'm I'm sure you've dealt with it to at least some degree, um, which I think anyone that was, uh, you know, has abused substance at some point was sitting there going, I fucking hate myself. Yeah. Um, but, so it's getting better but that makes a lot of sense with the hypochondria. But do you ever you start to slip back into it occasionally or wanna google illnesses or no? I
1: won't let myself. I basically made a rule with my primary care doctor years ago who I've had forever and I love her. She's brilliant and laughs at me, which I need. But it's essentially if I'm google if I feel like I need to google symptoms if it's got if it's not just me being crazy. Um, If it's something that's persistent enough that I am feeling like I need to Google symptoms, then I just make an appointment with my doctor. And that's worked really well for me because I was too poor and didn't have insurance for a while to like really give in fully to my hypochondria and the way that I've seen other people in my life who have better insurance or are, are, are like paid for by the state. They'll just go get every freaking test right. available to them. And I'm like, I I luckily was inhibited by the fact that I couldn't do that at all and didn't want to go into insane medical debt. I mean, I, I definitely had moments in, in hypochondria that were comically embarrassing <laughs> in my early hypochondria. But I also had crazy things happen to me that would only happen to a hypochondriac because God has a fucked up sense of humor. So I was, I think I was like 20 and I was going to get my first AIDS test and HIV test. And I went to a local place and I, this was back in the day when you had to wait a week for the results. This wasn't like the rapid test. You get a, like a pregnancy test now. Right. And, I went to this clinic and I got the stuff and then I, they either like, okay, come, they call, they're like, come back for your results. And I go up and I was so nervous. I had, I had been with a guy who had cheated on me with hookers. So I was like, and I was already a hypochondriac and I was convinced, I convinced myself because I was Catholic and all this guilt around sexuality and shame and all this stuff that I absolutely had HIV and I went to the window, and the woman looked at my name, and then burst into fucking tears, oh my and walked god. away. And I was like, "Oh my god!" My knees buckled. I was with my
0: friend. Holy shit! Because I
1: was like, I knew it. I fucking have AIDS. <laughs> I seriously want to like write this story and do it at like the moth, like the five minutes that I had AIDS, because this was then they didn't even give you the results there in that room you had to like walk outside and go to another building next door (laughs) and I had like rubber legs like I remember it so vividly because it was so visceral and and the woman just started crying and walked away and the other woman was like you have to go next door to get your results and I was my legs were just shaking and my friend was like oh my god you know my friend was she thought I had AIDS too and then (laughs) we go into the Next place, and this nurse runs out and she's like, I'm so sorry that woman just got bad news about a family member. I was like, wow. This is fucked up. Like, I should sue you for emotional distress. You should not be crying when somebody's coming to get their HIV res- results, like burst into tears. It was it, I was That's like
0: this, this. it traumatized me. I I I was I thought you were, I thought you going to say you got like a false positive cuz I had a friend that happened with that. So she was just crying on her own thing. Like she just was
1: Yeah. it I mean, had that's nothing to do with it. Even more me. insane.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean that's that's fucking crazy. Yeah, well, it's nuts. I'm glad you didn't have AIDS. Uh I was just writing about HIV cuz I, I I can't remember if we talked about this, but I I was talking about it to somebody, but I had I just found these notes that my mother had stored when I was seven. I went to a psychologist to have like a, what do you call that? An assessment or whatever, Uh, an analyst. And they wrote down all these things. My mother wrote all these things after talking to the psychiatrist. And he was like, yeah, Joe has so many phobias. And one of the things was my mother was writing, was like, yeah, he asks about AIDS all the time. Mm. And I was seven years old. Like this is 1989. So it was like, I think it was when Ryan White was, a big thing and they were talking yeah. about like it could happen to anybody and here's this 12 year old kid with AIDS and so at the time I was seven I was like horrified that I was yeah. gonna have AIDS and I hadn't I didn't start shooting heroin till I was nine so uh, <laughs> but it really was like a, a genuine thing and I felt like for me nobody said to me you're a hundred percent not gonna get AIDS yeah and, why do you think you're going to get this or whatever? And I, I feel like I was never shielded from those things as a, as a young kid. Like my family would just talk about it and play the news in front of me and all this stuff. And that Ryan White, I, I hated that son of a bitch because he was like this 12 year old, you know, white kid from the suburbs or whatever. whatever. They're like, hey, anyone could just get it because I think he had a blood transfusion is how he got it. Do you remember that he, kid?
1: I do. I, I feel like um, I there's a mosquito in here. It probably um, has AIDS. I used to think I could get it from mosquitoes. Um, But I do wonder how much of that was just that, like you said, we kind of came of age because then I went to a doctor one time and I was like, I'm nervous. And he's like, um, he's like, why? I was like, because I'm I just am worried that I have AIDS. And he was like, he started laughing at me. He's like, no one dies of AIDS anymore. (laughs) He just like laughed at it. He was like, Bridget, even if you have it, like it's you're not going to die. And I was thinking about like how far we'd come, even in, in that statement, just that he was like, no one dies of AIDS anymore. It was like he looked at me like I was a ridiculous person because I still had the mentality that i was raised with and came of age we kind of came of age as it was like the the epidemic was really unfolding they were starting to name it know what it was there there was untreatable it's basically a death sentence and i almost am like stuck in my brain in that place with it and now it's like it's so manageable and it's it's a miracle of modern medicine and um it's something that I lived in so much fear and, and there was so much stigma around it and shame and uh, all of it. And so, yeah, there is I think my hypochondria really started around around AIDS and sexually transmitted diseases. But in particular, HIV, just because of our age, as we were growing up in our teens, You know, preteens, this was like it dominated the news cycle. So, yeah, of course, we're going to like that's in our brain. That's in our that's that that got in our in that like developmental stage of our life when you're developing your sexuality.
0: (laughs) Right, right.
1: Sex might kill you. (laughs) That's like terrifying.
0: Yeah, no, it was it was horrifying. And I think that probably uh, is one of the many contributing factors to my lack of game and desire to have sex as a kid, I was like, I don't know, I don't want to do any of that. And talking to a woman could lead to AIDS. Maybe that was part of it. And also just uh, hating myself. But it was really fascinating because this was just recently a few weeks ago that I found all these notes from this psychiatrist. But it actually made me feel good in a way that I had this feeling of like, oh, none of this is my fault. I've been like this since I was a kid because I can beat myself up for being so afraid of everything, and 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 going back to what we talked about earlier, like you said, you're an adventurous person. I realize I am too because I do do all these things. I just have horrible anxiety while doing it. Like I'm like I do go and and practice mixed martial arts, and I ride roller coasters, and I fly all over the world and go to yeah. foreign countries in South America. It's just while I'm doing it, I'm losing my fucking mind.
1: Can we pause one quick second because this might be the genius bar? Sure, sure. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, oh, no.
0: all right. Um, we're back.
1: So so you were a neurotic little kid.
0: Yeah, exactly. And but it does yeah. feel like, oh, this wasn't Um, it's not my fault. I was this is like learned behavior. I've had this since I was a kid. It's not like I'm choosing to be afraid of uh, cancer. I've had that since I was five or earlier, I guess
1: yeah i I definitely was a neurotic little kid, too, I think. I was worried all the time, like a little worry wart. So it's there is something there is a genetic component to my um fear and worry. and i as I've grown up, I've talked about this a lot. Uh, my mom blames herself because she had. Remember, before the internet, you could. There were those books that were basically like choose your own adventure, but you're gonna die books. And <laughs> I don't know if you remember these. My mom had them, so it was like, if you have this symptom, turn to this page. If and then it would be like a list of follow up symptoms. And I was like, if you're experiencing this, turn to this page, and you'd go through all these symptoms and end up. It was like pre-web MD. Yeah, yeah. Um, And these books were, I wonder if she still has them because I remember her always having those books out and always being like, can you feel this lump? And is this, do you she had bad hypochondria looking back when we were growing up and was worried she was going to die. She had five kids. So she went through a phase where she was like petrified. She was going to die because what if she left her kids, you know, orphans and all this stuff. And So we definitely, my siblings and I all have, I've learned recently, I didn't realize so many of my other siblings struggled with this as they do and in various forms of it. So I definitely think there is like a a, a genetic component to the hypochondria. And then, oh, the other story I wanted to tell you of being made aware of how ridiculous this kind of... Fear is, I went and I had convinced myself I had throat cancer because the weird thing about hypochondria is that you'll get fixated on like one thing. And for me, it was like, there's something wrong with my throat. There's something wrong with my throat. And then it's always, it couldn't possibly be something mild. It's like, obviously cancer.
0: Yes, I had the same thing.
1: And so I had convinced myself that I had cancer of the throat because i was smoking all the time and i felt guilty about the fact that i was smoking a lot of my hypochondria revolves around guilt i used to get horrible hypochondria after when i was hungover like crippling right. debilitating and again i think it was guilt about just whatever i had done the night before or not remembering what i did or what i how, the way i felt so i go to the doctor same clinic that i got my Five minutes of AIDS test because <laughs> it was by my house, and great, great I, album
0: name by the way. Five minutes, <laughs> of AIDS.
1: and I go and I walk in and I get my throat done, and they're like, "Oh, okay, well." I'm like, "It's cancer, isn't it?" There, and they're like, "They're like, there's something definitely wrong," and I was like. It's cancer, right? And they're like, God. "No, you have allergies. Do You want a Claritin?" And I never felt so fucking stupid in my entire life. It was one of the top ten moments of feeling like just wow. Talk about making mountains out of moles. I still think of it all the time. Like, "Oh, do you want a Claritin?" I just died laughing. I was like, I for weeks had convinced myself that I had throat cancer and that I was going to need, a, you know, a hole in my throat. Right, right.
0: <laughs> it's amazing i mean i relate so hard to your story because i've had the same exact thing same exact ailment but don't you find too there's like and i know we got to wrap up shortly here but like oh, yeah, don't I'm you, fine. don't you find there's like it's we almost like a drug though because the feeling you get when they're like no you don't have to get out of here it's like this weight off your shoulders or for me anyways and i'm like oh and it's almost like doing fucking uh, taking a painkiller or something like that where you're like where you're like oh amazing I feel alive again like it, it's this weird um relief uh, yeah exactly it's, a, it's yeah. such a relief and, and I feel so much gratitude in that moment that I almost think that's part of it is I become obsessed with something just to feel the relief of it oh that's um,
1: interesting I never really thought of that actually
0: but it, it does feel like, oh, it's almost like I had cancer and beat it. And I, I've said that to my therapist before. I'm like, I've beaten cancer 50 times already. <laughs> um,
1: my cousin, it got to the point that my cousin Maggie had to be like you. She had this mantra that she would say to me. She'd say, um, it's not a tumor. You don't have AIDS. There's nothing wrong with your lips. And that skirt doesn't make you look like you have a dick. Because I would always be like, does the skirt make me look like I have a dick? She's like, what? <laughs>
0: i have that one too uh it, it is and it's gotten for me so much better but i had that with uh two years ago i had basically a year-long panic attack because i had reflux acid reflux and they call it silent reflux where it can fuck with your throat and, and and make like an itchy throat and sore throat and i remember going back to my ent i kept going and i was like so will there ever be a time when I can have chicken parm again? It's like my favorite food. And he was like, what? He's like, you can have it tonight. <laughs> He's like, go have it tonight. He's like, take a, a pepsi." He's like, just don't have it before. Like if you're doing an hour show, it might irritate your throat. And it was like a full year of me not eating anything I wanted to eat. And I was just miserable. But as I thought I was going to get uh, throat cancer or whatever. And then I talked to, um, I did Dr. Dr. Drew. Yeah. Dr. Drew. That's the guy, the LA guy with a podcast. Right? Yeah. 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 I confused him and Dr. Phil. Doc- I went on Dr. Drew and he was like, reflux ain't shit. And it was like so helpful to me to just have a guy who's a doctor of some kind. Maybe he's a quack. I don't know. But he was just like, nah, that ain't shit. And I was like, oh, all right, great. But it was like a year long freakout. But basically it was anxiety. So long story short, I'm, I'm feeling better. I had a little relapse, but I got to call you next time. I'm before Instead of Googling, I'll call you. That's all right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely I had to like really aggressively attack my hypochondria and to the point that my therapist now wants me to write the book that I want to write, which is kill your hypochondria before it kills you, because I, I I really had to like personify. I basically named it. I got a rubber band. I had to rewire my brain essentially because it was it's that idea of like what fires together wires together. So every time I would say there's something wrong with my lips, I had to snap the rubber band, replace it with a loving or, or, you know, I would say I am healthy. Everything is okay. I am healthy. And then I would do that hundreds of times. Like my wrist would be just destroyed by the end of the day from this rubber band snapping. And when I was really aggressively, attacking it because i had to just retrain myself to to um think loving thoughts or positive thoughts and then i also couldn't give into that wiring so googling touching whatever part of my body i thought had a tumor going into the mirror and looking at whatever i thought was whatever was wrong with me i could i couldn't i You know the action only reinforces those those kinds of thoughts. So, I mean, it's actually crazy how much work I had to do around it, and I do not experience it anymore. I feel I have moments, like I said, of moments of where I feel that like nervous flutter, and the problem that I had with anxiety and panic attacks was I didn't know what was happening to me. I never, when I had my first panic attack, I I was in the Chicago. Chicago airport. And I was sweating through shirts. I had no idea what was happening to me. And my yoga instructor at the time I was getting certified in yoga. I called her. I'm like, what's happening to me? And she was like, oh, this is just a panic attack you're having. I couldn't breathe. And my flight kept getting sickeningly, sickeningly delayed 15 minutes every 15 minutes. It was like God was personally laughing at me being tortured by my own Mind And that, I think that's what's so the thing. And the reason that I have so much compassion for people who really suffer with hypochondria, anxiety, OCD, all of these things are kind of intermingled yeah. is because it is a mental illness. Like, you know, it's a mental illness. Yeah. And you can't get outside of the matrix of your own mind. You know, it's like, how do I get on top of that? which is, you know, like you said, meditation helps. I had to there, I needed therapy. I had to really start. I think that cognitive behavioral therapy, whether I realized I was doing it or not, that was essentially what I was doing, where I started keeping a log of every time I would feel hypochondria and what the behavior was and what triggered it and um, what was something I could replace it with. And, and so that's, I didn't know I was doing this, but it, it is cognitive behavioral therapy, and I think that's that gives you the information that you can then take to a therapist and say, "How do we address, like in my case, the shame I feel around my sexuality and being raped and all these things? How do I address the sh- the feelings of worthlessness that trigger, you know, not being able to hold joy? <laughs> like, how do I address? How do we look at these things? And then it's just like getting sober was a huge one for me. I, I, I didn't realize how much of my anxiety was relieved almost within the first two years of getting sober. Yeah. So much of it.
0: Yeah. I had a lot of that too with my sobriety, but a lot of it comes crawling back. But man, I, I, I relate to so much of what you're saying, even the, I, I'm fortunate not to be a, a victim of any kind of sexual abuse, but I have, such shame with sex just and I mean like just regular missionary sex with my (laughs) wife I apologize I feel like oh my god I'm a piece of shit so that but also the OCD I deal with I'm dealing with it now I can feel myself blinking and flexing my arm throughout and anxiety hypochondria it really is just wild and i have to remind myself of like how far i have come that's what my therapist is always doing but he's like look at all you've done in spite of that yeah where it's like again like i've done late night tv and managed to move to new york and i have a wife who's a relatively normal person and and <laughs> you know i've traveled all over the world so it is this thing of like i have accomplished all these things in spite of of that it's not yeah crippling but it does. It's the, the thief of joy. Like it's hard to, to hold any joy or peace, but I guess it's, um, a work in progress, progress, not perfection as we say, but this has been really helpful. Everything you're saying. And I think I need to stay in touch with you on this to recover from this stuff.
1: Oh yeah. I tell people I'm like, I will happily be your like hypochondria sponsor because (laughs) I it's it's like I needed somebody like my cousin when I was really going through it and getting using the rubber band and really addressing it. I had to really like address it head on, um, because I was a mess and I was frying my my adrenals must have been just fried because I was in such a state of fight or flight all the time. And it really it is, I really think too one of the things that's under under researched or looked at with um with hypochondria, for me, it was like an addiction to worry. I yeah. didn't know. It was like, I I could just be creative and use that energy creatively. But if I'm not being creative, I generally end up that energy kind of turns on me and starts creatively finding ways to like self-destruct. Exactly, and that is a bad space to, to be in. And I had to really, to really have somebody like my cousin who had that funny mantra where she could just like make fun of it. I needed somebody who was like, you're not dying. You don't have cancer. It's not AIDS. There's nothing wrong with your lips like you. You don't look like you're you have a dick in that skirt. It just it, I needed someone to like take the piss out of me because it it, it definitely I mean, I would. there were times where I was in the fetal position in bed, unable to function. And it was just uh, the product of my own mind. And it's I look back on that and I, I, when people tell me they struggle with this, I want to like take them in my arms and hug them because I know how debilitating it can be and how silent you suffer with it. You know, you'll be out at dinner with a group of people and be suffering greatly and no one will know.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just dealt with it this past week and, uh, yeah, I feel it so much and I appreciate it. It's funny cause I feel like we know each other very well now, but I've never actually seen you in person. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to cash in on that hug. Um, but, Oh, fuck, I forget what I was going to say. Oh, that's what I was going to say is the anxiety of and, and hypochondria OCD has been the greatest hindrance to my career uh, mm. creatively. Like, I feel like I would have created so much more material and, and maybe made films or, or written more stuff or pitch shows or whatever. But it was all my own hype, just debilitating uh, hypochondria. So, And again, like I was just saying, I have to remind myself that it's a miracle I've gotten as far as I have in spite of all these things. So I'm hoping the second half of uh, my life, I can be more um, productive and creative with kind of getting on top of this stuff.
1: Well, and think of how amazing it is that in the pandemic, you actually said that you were feeling more at peace because, you know, logically that doesn't make sense most people in a pandemic would with hypochondria have not been doing great
0: yeah it's funny (laughs) i've had people say that they're like what this is like a virus but in some ways it does feel like oh i've been preparing for this my whole life and it's so (laughs) ironic because i i was last year we were i was on the uh, impractical jokers cruise with a bunch of comics and sarah and a bunch of wonderful people and not realizing that this would be like the last great thing we ever did. Um, but um, now I forget what I was going to say. Cause I felt like I, that was dramatic to say the last great thing, but I remember <laughs> everyone was talking about COVID and I had this distinct feeling from from um meditation and kind of getting better of like not this time they're not getting me this time because I remember bird flu I was like crippled for like months I couldn't I was so depressed and 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 climate change and cancer and AIDS and all these things and uh, whatever the one that was in new york a while back that um I can't remember what that was e coli whatever whatever the oh, fucking yeah, thing yeah. was whatever the thing was that was snipped in the bud but I was like, this time, I'm not going to worry about this shit. It's in China. Who gives a shit? I've, I've panicked about this before. And then it was in Seattle. And then it was in New York. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not worrying. And then everything shut down. But it it did. Um, I don't know. I, I've been much better with this. And it is. I, I've just improved a lot, but have a long way to go still, for sure.
1: Yeah, it's I, I think it's good to stay on top of it. And I definitely I mean, I encourage anyone to reach out. I always try and help anyone I can on this topic because there, as my therapist has told me, she's like, there's really nothing that we can do other than medicate people. You know, she was like, aside, aside, there's not really, she was like, please write your book because I don't use meds. I didn't want to have to use them. And I actually found that the meds that they gave me for hypochondria made me more anxious And generally, like things like Xanax and all those meds just they're a I can't take them because I'll just take them and b. they make me they make me I'm like, oh, I can see why people get hooked on these, because when you're coming off of them, your anxiety like skyrockets. And one of the things that I really. There's a great book, care of the soul by Thomas Moore. And he talks about the gifts of these things that we consider negatives in our life. It's I re- it's kind of heady, but I read it, it's, it's beautiful. And he talks about the gifts of anxiety and depression. And one of the gifts that I've found, and again, I can really see this in sobriety, is the anxiety that I was feeling, particularly when I first started getting panic attacks Was the fact that I didn't want to be in my first marriage anymore. And I didn't know how to articulate that. And I was scared to get out of the marriage. And my anxiety was just like out of control because I was lying to myself. So, something I've learned about myself is that I'm, um, and then recently I was with someone and she was like, oh no, we're totally going to hang out. We're going to be friends. And, I was. I kept getting like bad anxiety, and I looked at her, and I was like, "You're lying to me." Wow! (laughs) And so it's become this lightning rod now, where I know that I'm either lying to myself or someone around me is lying to me, and it's just a it's a barometer that I just I I have that sensitive little antenna, and I think a lot of my use, um, drug use, and other uh, other substances was. A, I'm just, again, genetically predisposed, but B, like you, I'm just kind of sensitive and neur- neurotic. And th- it was easier for me to just numb all of those intuitions and feelings out instead of having to recognize them and learn how to kind of manage them and discern, is this a real fear or is this just excitement that I'm perceiving as a fear? Is right. this is this something that's... um it was is this like me lying to myself or is this and this this girl when I said you're never going to call me again you don't have to lie to me and she literally never called me again I was like I was right right (laughs) you guys just told me the truth and it was just it was so I've had those moments too and you know depression I find comes when I'm um not again, it's like a, some kind of dishonesty with myself, but a different kind of dishonesty. So, yeah, I I actually think that a lot of the time medicating, um, I'm, you know, obviously not like the clinical version of these things is very different, um, or chemical, but in some instances, I'm grateful I've had to kind of ride it out sober as uncomfortable as it is because it's given me so much information
0: yeah same well everything you've said in this uh podcast at least in the second half has really uh, not that the first half was bad Yeah, like we the first half sucked we, we weren't we weren't talking about this we were talking about uh, sam harris i guess but well
1: sam harris and twitter are relevant only because i think Lot of people don't understand. I see so many people on these online platforms making themselves crazy, and in many ways, it's like hypochondria you're like addicted to that adrenaline, exactly dopamine, and the interaction. And then you're like, Why am I feeling like shit, or why am I engaging, or why? And it's really, it is like, at least with Twitter, like you said, you can it's like a magic trick because you can shut it. Whereas with hypochondria, you can't turn your brain off. There were times where I was like, I want a fucking lobotomy like that guy in that movie. Pie.
0: Oh, I was thinking, I was (laughs) was thinking cuckoo's nest. I (laughs) Um,
1: I was like, give me a freaking drill to put in my brain.
0: I know the feeling so well. I mean, I I relate so much to all these things you're saying. And this has been like so, so incredibly valuable to me. This is going to be one of the few. podcast of mine that I listen back to. I'll fast forward <laughs> to my parts, obviously. But Bridget, I really, really uh, appreciate it. and I hope you've uh, enjoyed it. And I think you are really uh, of service, certainly to me and hopefully to a lot of other people that are dealing with this.
1: Yeah, I love it. If they have any questions, just tell them to send them to you and we can do a follow up.
0: All right. Sounds great. I would love to do that. <laughs> um, why don't uh, you plug your shows and, uh, and Twitter and all that stuff for the people that don't know?
1: Um, you can follow me, Bridget Fettis, at Bridget Fettis, P-H-E-T-A-S-Y, um, anywhere, really. And Instagram, I'm not on there that much. Twitter, obviously, I'm addicted to it. And <laughs> and uh, um, you can also find my podcast, Walk-Ins Welcome, anywhere podcasts are available. And I have a show on YouTube called Dumpster Fire, which is... Um, a little bit more of the performative, um, outragey, y side of me, and walk-ins welcome is the more introspective kind of fun conversation. So it's a bit of it's a bit all over the place. Oh, yeah. and I have a column. I have a monthly column at Spectator Magazine.
0: Hell yeah! Um, it's funny we both have that similar thing. I have a very wildly irreverent, offensive comedy podcast, and this sort of <laughs> introspective uh, mental health podcast. It's good. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's nice. It's nice to uh, explore both sides. Obviously. Yeah. Um, Bridget, thanks so much. This was great. It's one you of my Joe, favorite It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you.
1: Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List, produced by Joe List, edited by Matt Kleinschmidt, executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts.